Uh, you should all have a uh, handout entitled, How Will I Love You? For Acceptance or From Acceptance? Um, I'm going to refer, I'm going to be referring to two passages of Scripture today, and before I get started, let me go ahead and read those. Uh, if you don't have a handout, yeah, go ahead and raise your hand and we'll make sure you get one. <coughs> The first one is out of Genesis 3, uh, verses 8 through 11. And it says, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden of the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of thee in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to me to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. And then the second passage I'm going to be referring to is in Romans 6, uh, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal bodies that you should obey its lusts, And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Let me pray and we'll get started. Father, I pray that you would um, take our time, uh, that you would use it in our lives. Uh, that the things that we need to hear, you would cause us to be open to. And that as a result of this time, that um, our lives might be a bit different, that we might be a bit different, and that we could live life more effectively as you have intended for us to do. So I ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now suppose you approached me as uh, as we were walking in this morning. And you asked me how I'm doing. And what would you think if I respond to you? What would your thoughts be if I responded to you and said something like this? Oh, I'm doing pretty good, but I'll tell you what. My lungs are really clear this morning. I'm breathing really well. I can get a full breath of air. And um, my lungs are really working well. Now, what would you think? What would your natural... Reaction B. What? That's a lot of detail. <laughs> okay. Sorry? I had a problem. Yeah, our, our body parts are made in such a way that they don't usually call attention to themselves unless something is wrong with them. Now, if that's the case, there must be something terribly wrong with our ego. Because our egos, and we're always calling attention to ourselves. Uh, Do you ever find yourself doing any one of the following things? Um, Getting defensive or feeling upset by criticism from a significant other without considering the legitimacy of it or not. Um, Feeling compelled to look at the reflection of yourself in a mirror or in a window. And then, once you've seen that reflection, either 
nodding with approval or grimacing with shame when you see what's staring back at you. Uh, Or doing something for someone and then finding yourself uh, getting offended if you don't feel like it's being responded to in the way that you think is warranted. Uh, Or doing something or doing things for someone and then finding yourself in a position where you have to ask them for help and they don't respond with the kind of eagerness or, or um, helpfulness that you think is warranted, especially in light of the things that you've already done for them. Uh, or um, cringing when your flaws or shortcomings are exposed uh, and not liking that and feeling the need to point out the flaws of others and making sure they know how they've offended you. The list is really endless and it goes on forever, but all of these things point to the same thing, that something must be wrong with our egos because we're always calling attention to ourselves. Now, the fact is that deep inside of every one of us is a longing uh, to feel valuable, significant, meaningful, and worthwhile. We're all in a constant struggle to feel like we really matter. And the genesis of this struggle goes back to the passages that I read to you out of Genesis uh, 3. Now, just to pull in together what we've done in the last couple of weeks, in Genesis 2 we found that the first husband and wife, Adam and Eve, uh, were in a relationship that was characterized by uh, a sense of comfort within themselves. They were naked and unashamed. They were uh, willing to be transparent, authentic, and open. Uh, they were comfortable with their differences. <clears throat> and we, we saw that their differences weren't just minor variances, but they were fundamental opposites. Uh, they were able to celebrate and enjoy the worlds that their differences enabled them to enter into. And the primary factor that made this relationship was po- possible was that each of them had an identity that was anchored in a profound sense of how deeply loved and adored and celebrated they were by their maker, by their creator. And because of that, they were, enter into, they were able to enter into their relationship with each other and life in the garden from a place of fullness rather than from a place of emptiness looking for something to fill them. But then we realize, if we go on in the passage, that it didn't last long because Eve began to have an interaction with the serpent, who we're told was the craftiest uh, animal in the garden or the craftiest uh, part of the garden. And the serpent began planting seeds of doubt and fear in their minds about the goodness of the maker. And the essence of his interaction was this. If God is good, then why has he withheld this thing that is so good from you? Referring to the tree in the center of the garden. He's obviously keeping something from you that would really help you if you had it. Do you think God can really be good if if he withholds something that's so good? Do you think he's really after your ultimate good? Now, if you give yourselves to him, and if you do everything he tells you, he's going to cheat you, or abuse you, or 
make you do something you don't like. You can't really trust him for your good. And in response to this interaction, their hearts were filled with fear and doubt about God's care for them. And instead of running to God, they found themselves running away from God, hiding from him. Now, this is really kind of the same lie that I think gets lodged in each of our hearts. I don't know how many of you have experienced, but I know I certainly do. And that is, the lie is that if I really do give myself with abandon and complete, um, complete unadulterated uh, openness, that God is going to cheat me out of something good or that God is going to make me do something I don't want to do. I always had this fear, you know, that if I gave, this is when I was single, that if I really did obey God, He was going to make me marry somebody I didn't really like. You know, and I always heard that, that idea that God is more interested in our character than He is in our happiness, is if somehow those, aren't, those two things aren't, aren't inextricably linked. And so, or, or that the universal fear, I think, is that if, if we give ourselves to God unconditionally, that we're going to be sent to... Um, Africa or the mission field someplace that we don't want to go. The point is that this, the lie is that if we really give ourselves completely and unconditionally to God, our lives are going to be cheated. And as a result, the consequence of the lie is twofold. And I think it's the same consequence in our lives as it is for Adam and Eve. The The first consequence was that now fear and doubt consumed their lives and they began to question God about his goodness toward him, toward them. And the result was, the second one, was that they now looked into the eyes of something else or they listened to the voice of something else to find their security, their value, their meaning, and their worth. So there was a competing voice defining who they were. This is a voice that hadn't been present before. This is the reason that I think God had tried to spare them of this because God wanted them to have one voice in their head defining who they were, not two. But now there was a second voice and that voice was what drove them to hid. And so we see then in Genesis 3 in the passage that I read to you the struggle for identity, and it's driven by two fundamental questions. God was coming through the garden, taking his afternoon stroll, and and realized that something was different this time. Instead of Adam and Eve running to him, they were hidden. They weren't available. Now, have you ever come home from work, and uh, when you walk in the door, you sensed something was not right? I mean, you know, your wife or your husband might typically look at you and make eye contact with you and and greet you and be warm in their response to you, but they're not not maintaining eye contact or they're avoiding you in some way. Uh, They're not not running toward you and they're certainly not uh, terribly open to you. And what's your first question? Where are you? What's going on? This is the same question that God asked Adam. Now, when I start a session in counseling, uh, the first question I'll typically ask is, where are you? Now, God didn't ask this question because, because he had somehow lost track of their geographical whereabouts in the garden. 
God asked this question because he was really asking, what's up with you? Where are you? Who are you? When I ask that question, I'm really asking people, tell me about yourself. Who are you right now? What's going on in your lives? And it's really an invitation on my part to encourage people to be metaphorically naked and unashamed. Open yourselves up. I would like to know who you are. And so God asked Adam this question, where are you? And the second question was, who told you? Who told you who you are? Whose voice have you been listening to to define and determine your identity? Where have you gone to learn about who you are? In the same way, these are two of the primary drive mechanisms in our own search for an identity that define who we are. All of us have something we will go to to create a sense of significance, security, meaning, and worth. And this is really what Paul is talking about in, in Romans 6. I, I'm not going to read the whole... I didn't read the whole chapter. I was just reading the two verses. But essentially what Paul's saying in Romans 6 is, and I'll go back to this a little later, he's saying, all of us are going to be slaves to something. We're either going to be slaves to our Maker and be completely and unconditionally given to our Maker and define who we are through His voice, or we're going to look to something else in our search for an identity. We're going to try to find something to make our lives meaningful, to tell us that we're worth something, or to tell us that our lives matter and that we're valuable. All of us will have something. And whatever that thing is, is going to be our spiritual master. That's the thing that will control us. That's the thing that will consume us. For some of us, it may be careers. For some of us, it may be... um, how much money we have. For some of us, it may be our physical attractiveness. For some of us, it might be our achievements or having our kids go uh, to the right schools, uh, living in the right neighborhoods. For some of us, it may be uh, our control, our ability to control and have power over people or to have people need us. Uh, For some of us, it may be um, our involvement with church. I can tell you that for... 25 years, I was faithful in my prayer life and in my uh, reading of Scripture, but I can tell you that I wasn't faithful in my prayer life and in my reading of Scripture, A, because I was so in love with God, and B, because I wanted to know God better. Rather, the reason that I was is because I felt like if I didn't read my Bible and pray, I wasn't worth something. And so, and the other thing is that God would be upset with me. So I really did read my Bible and pray to get God off my back. Not because I loved Him, but because I was terrified of Him. And so I wanted my way of defining my value and my security well, and all of us can have more than one spiritual master. One of them was reading the Bible and praying. 
another one was, um, or I shouldn't say it was, because it is still something that I struggle with, but <clears throat> another one is my, my uh, relentless quest to be independent. I hate people telling me what to do, which is a problem if you're married, especially to a wife like mine who's a shaper and a sculptor and a crafter, and she likes to shape her world. And me being a part of it means that I get the benefits of that energy. And um, she likes to shape me in ways that I don't necessarily like to be shaped. And so the bottom line is, <clears throat> one of the mantras in my life is I hate people telling me what to do. Now, that has become... That has been one of the things that I look to that defines my security and significance. We all have them, but perhaps one of the main ways we have of defining our value or defining that our life is worth something is marriage or the romantic solution. You know, back in Jesus' day, the irony was, in Jesus' day, it was against the law to be single. Uh, you had to be married. Uh, in fact, Jesus was, the, was the, the beginning of creating singleness as an alternative pathway of significance and meaning. Because prior to Jesus, Jesus was not, um, Jesus was somebody who was saying essentially you can have meaning and worth and value without, having, without being married. But in Jewish culture, that was not something that was acceptable. Now, it's, there's a book that I've really appreciated and enjoyed, and it's actually written by an atheist. His name is Ernest Becker, and this is a Pulitzer Prize winning book. And it's called the, the, the Denial of Death. And he's, it's, his insight is very interesting because he writes of this contemporary tendency to find our meaning and our worth in the romantic solution. He says that modern man has responded to his powerful need for validation in the innermost being by focusing on the romantic solution. Now all of our longings for personal worth and meaning are looked for in the love partner. The lover becomes the way of finding fulfillment in life. Validation is now expected to come from the loved one. He goes on to write, what is it that we want when we elevate the love partner to the position of God in our lives? We want redemption, nothing less. We want to be rid of our faults, of our feelings of nothingness. We want to be justified to know that our creation has not been in vain. We turn to the love partner for perfect validation. We expect them to make us good through their love. Now, the problem with this, this solution or this approach is that we don't consider how placing the weight of our significance and security on another pe person really do limit and... Um, impact or affect negatively intimacy. Wanting to be validated from a significant other is very, very natural and normal. Needing it is a problem. However, this is probably the drive mechanism that encourages most people to get married. Uh, I do quite a bit of premarital counseling, and one of the things I'll invariably ask, usually fairly early on, in the session is, why do you want to get married to this person? And implied in their answer is an answer that sounds something like this. Oh, man, I just, I really want to marry this person because they just make me feel so good. Um, they love me so much. And I've never had anybody who, 
who makes me feel the way they do and they're just so eager and they just want to meet my needs. Now, implied in this answer is the idea that they see their spouse to be as this emotional ATM machine that dispenses validation and and security. And all they have to do is go up to it and make their needs and their desires known. And this person will be more than eager to respond to them. And that marriage basically is, a, is signing on to a lifetime uh, of this kind of relationship. What they don't realize is the collision that this is about to lead them into. Because remember that life with a corresponding complement means that there are going to be, at least in two-thirds of the cases in life, times when I'm going one direction and my spouse is going another direction, and we're not necessarily going to see eye to eye. We're not necessarily going to be on the same page. Kirk and Kimberly had been married for several months when the following incident occurred. It was a Saturday morning, and they'd just woken up, and they'd had a very loosely negotiated rule that the last one up would make the bed. Actually, Kirk was the one that made that rule, and he was the one that made it because, for the most part, he never had to make the bed because he was always the first one out of bed because he had to leave early to go to work. Well, this particular Saturday, Kirk was the last one out of bed, so Kimberly asked him if he would make the bed, and he kind of reluctantly agreed to after he initially resisted. <clears throat> and so he got up, he pulled, the cover, he pulled the sheet up, pulled the comforter up, and threw the 12 pillows on the bed just kind of haphazardly. And when he was done, he kind of proudly pronounced, Done! I think I've set a new world's record. Well, Kimberly looked at him, and she kind of had this exasperated look on her face, and she sighed, and she said, That is not how you make a bed. So she proceeded to throw all 12 pillows off, pull the comforter back, pull the sheet back, and begave and began to give Kirk a crash course in the standard operating procedure of bed making. She told him how to pull it up, you know, a foot from the top, make sailor's corners on the sheet, and then and then make sure it was all straight, and then pull the comforter uh, up, and then the twelve pillows had some kind of a synchronization to the way they were supposed to go on the bed in order to make them look right, and so. Well, halfway through this, Kirk was totally irritated and annoyed. I can't believe you're doing this. Why do you have to be so critical and controlling? Don't you appreciate a kind gesture when you get one? You know, it doesn't seem like anything I do is helpful. Well, if you really want to help me, why don't you inquire about what I think would be helpful? There's no point in wasting your time. If you're not going to do it right the first time, then don't do it, she said. I can't believe it. Here it is. I'm really trying to carry my weight. I'm trying to do something nice for you. And this is how you respond to me. You know what? If you have this idea of the way you think it needs to be done, why don't you just do it all the time? I don't think it really matters if I do these things because it doesn't get appreciated anyway. Well, I can't believe you're accusing me of being controlling and critical because all I'm trying to do is to help you. Trying to help your world become a better place, more organized, 
more orderly. Well, if that's what it's going to take to live in that kind of a world, I don't know if I really want to be a part of that. Now, this is a very mundane illustration, but it really does show us a little bit of what the problem is when we begin, when we need to look in the eyes or listen to the voice of a loved one or a, or a spouse to get a sense of our own meaning and significance and value and worth. Now let's look at that first. Uh, we can see, uh, this is just one of those, we've seen these for the last two weeks. This is the relationship of the corresponding complement. You can see Kirk finds relief and comfort making bed by pulling his sheets up roughly and pillows thrown randomly on the bed with a comforter pulled up over it all. And he finds tension and discomfort on the other side, making the bed by carefully pulling sheets and blankets and smoothing each out carefully, placing the comforter and pillows in a neat fashion. And Kimberly is just the opposite. The problem with this is that what each find, what one finds comfortable, the other one doesn't. So when it comes to bed making, which is a very simple little thing, there's only room for one of them to feel good at a time. Both Kirk and Kimberly came into their marriage with different ideas about how to make a bed. And rather than seeing this as a problem arising from competing agendas about the proper protocol about bed making, they interpreted the other's behavior from within their own framework. So from within Kimberly's framework, Kirk was uncaring, sloppy, careless, and wasteful. And from within Kirk's framework, Kimberly was rigid, controlling, critical, and anal. Each person was making the mistake of following the golden rule. The golden rule is do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Now, the problem with following this rule in a relationship of corresponding complements is this. If you're trying to implement a standard that your spouse doesn't necessarily share, it's not likely to be validated by your spouse. And in fact, it's likely to be judged as inferior, lacking, inadequate, or intrinsically flawed. And when that happens, we're going to respond by either trying to change, by either trying to change it, or dismiss it, or diminish it, or write it off in some way. The problem with that is that when I realize that you see my approach to life as being intrinsically flawed, and that you're making judgments that it's intrinsically inferior, I'm going to become more driven to prove that you're wrong in an attempt to change your perspective. And this is where the endless arguments originate. And why are two people originating? Because each is trying to get their position validated from a spouse who sees life so fundamentally different. And there's no end point because whoever gets the last word is the position that prevails and so the other person then has to go ahead and encounter it in order to assert their position and the legitimacy of it. Now, there are several limits that needing validation from a love partner place on intimacy. But before I go into that, I want to kind of unpack that verse that I was that I, was read, that I read in Romans 6.12. And it says, Do not let sin reign 
in your mortal bodies so that you obey its evil desires. Now, most of us sit here. Well, I, I can't speak for you. I can tell you that for years I would listen. To, I'd hear that verse and I'd think kind of smugly, you know, that verse really doesn't apply to me. And the reason it doesn't apply to me because I don't, you know, I don't go out and have affairs and steal and, you know, and get drunk and um, do drugs or anything like that. <clears throat> and I would think, you know, okay, I don't give my myself over to sin. Let sin reign in my mortal body to obey its evil desires. Until I began to realize that this verse is really not talking about a desire for bad things. Evil desires is not a desire for bad things. What this is saying is, it says, do not let sin reign. And, and what it's saying is, in, in fact, you have to look at it in the context of the whole Romans 6. But Romans 6, basically, Paul is saying there's two kinds of people. There are people who are completely um, given over and they have, they have given themselves completely to God. And then there are people who are not. There are people who have given themselves to something else. And whatever that is, and because if we're not giving ourselves to God, then we're allowing something else to be our spiritual master. Now, the word evil desires in Greek, the Greek word is epithumia, and the word Thumia means desires. It doesn't necessarily mean a desire for bad things. It means actually a desire for good things. And the word epi means inordinate. So obeying evil desires doesn't mean don't let yourself want bad things. It means don't let yourself be controlled by an inordinate desire for good things. Don't let yourself be controlled by an inordinate desire for good things. And that's when it hit me <clears throat> that there are all kinds of good things that are good and that are perfectly reasonable in the place of a desire. But a good thing becomes an inordinate thing when we begin to look at it, when, when we change when we change a position, a, a statement from I want to I need. I want you to love me. I want you to feel good about me. I want to have a good job and, and uh, make a nice living. Uh, I want you to um, think highly of me. Those are all thumias. They're all good things. But the minute we go through and change the I want to I need, I need you to feel good about me. I need you to love me. Uh, or how about another one? I want you to talk to me. I want sex. Those are all thumias. But an epithumia is I need sex. I need you to talk to me. I need you to love me. And what that's saying is, when we make a good thing and turn it into an ultimate thing, it has now become an evil desire. 
It is the thing in our lives that we're looking to that has now become our spiritual master. When I need my spouse to make me feel secure, significant, meaningful, and worthy, then I have just turned a good desire into an evil desire. And so what Paul is saying here is don't let yourself be controlled by trying to find your identity in good things that you have turned into the ultimate things in your life. And part of the reason that I think this is so difficult to understand is because it's so subtle. And there's such a fine line in that process where, we, where something is transformed from a good thing into an ultimate thing. Um, when we have turned the need for validation into an ultimate thing in our lives, then something happens. Then what happens is that the weight of, my, uh, the weight of what my spouse thinks of me will become heavier than the reality of what I know is true about me. Now, heavier objects always displace lighter objects. You know, if I had, if I had a glass of water up here and it was filled to the brim and then I had a rock, the heavier object would always displace the lighter object. And what happens is, when the heavier object displaces the lighter object, whatever that lighter object was is no longer... Um, present of being, it's no longer capable of being sustained in its current form. Now, when I need my spouse to validate me, the weight of what my spouse thinks will become heavier than what I may think or know is true about me. And this is where intimacy becomes highly um, difficult to sustain. Here, what you can see is... Basically, here's an algebraic equation here. When the weight of what my spouse thinks is heavier than the weight of what I know, you can see the weight of what you know is true about you, or what the weight of what I know is true about me is, let's say it weighs two pounds. But when the weight of what my spouse thinks about me weighs eight pounds, then when what my spouse thinks about me is good, then my value is two plus eight, and I get a 10. And I love to feel like a 10. But the problem with that is, if my spouse doesn't think highly of me, uh, and it may not have anything to do with me, uh, maybe they're just having a bad day. Maybe they're just, um, they've heard something at work. Maybe they have just heard something about uh, a friend of theirs, or some other reason, or, or maybe I'm just not living life the way that he or she thinks that I should, when I'm not living life in the way that he or she thinks I should, now notice what happens to my sense of value, my sense of security and significance. Now my value is to minus 8 or to minus 6. So my value now is very volatile and it fluctuates in a way that may not have anything to do with who I am. It doesn't even have as much to do with what my spouse thinks 
but rather it has everything to do with how much weight I've given to what my spouse thinks. And so when that happens, I'm at the mercy of several things. First of all, our lives will be given to, two, to one of two pervasive drives, either to get someone to validate me. When I need, and, and if I could just leave this slide up here because I'm going to refer back to it, but when I need someone to validate me, the active ingredient in all of my interactions with that person will be seeking validation or seeking to feel significant and, and worthy. Um, <clears throat> how many of you have ever um, come up to your spouse and said, I love you? And then your spouse has made the tragic mis mistake of saying, thank you, period. And they didn't realize that when you said, I love you, there was an exclamation point on the end of it. There was a colon. And the colon was to be followed by something else. I love you. Oh, thanks. Well, what do you mean, well? Well, how do you feel about me? Well, oh, okay, well, I love you too. Um, or, um, uh, I don't know how many of you have experienced this. I was, uh, I had thought I would, uh, one of the things that Peggy has told me is that she likes it when I'll just give her a back rub and she doesn't have to ask for it. And so, one particular night, I gave her, in an unsolicited way, a back rub. And I found myself increasingly, over the time I was giving her the back rub, getting irritated and annoyed. You know why I was getting irritated and annoyed? Because I was expecting you know, some sound effects of some kind from her. You know, oh man, Mark, this feels really good. Oh, I, can't I can't imagine, this is so incredible what you're doing. I appreciate this so much. But she fell asleep. Now, as I was doing that, and she fell asleep, I started thinking, you know, why am I even doing this? This isn't even worth anything. Well, understand that the active ingredient in everything we do, when the, when the weight of what my spouse thinks of me is heavier than the weight of what I know is true, the active ingredient is seeking validation. Or, or the other one is to protecting ourselves from the pain of not getting validated. See, in other words, I'm not going to make myself known if I don't think there's a relatively high probability of getting what I want because if my spouse says no, it isn't just simply an answer to my request. It's a statement about me. It's not just a, no, I don't really care to, or no, I don't really want to. It's a, no, you're not valuable. So I'm either going to be driven by the need to seek validation or, or driven by the need to protect myself against the pain of not getting it. And so, look at what that does then to the, to the relationship of being naked and unashamed. I'm really not willing to be open about who I am. 
And I'm not terribly comfortable with myself about myself because who I am is more at the mercy of how my spouse responds to me than it is dependent on something independent from my spouse. And so consequently, <clears throat> this leads me to the second thing, what my spouse thinks about me becomes an indictment on me rather than an opinion. Now, see, when my spouse, when I'm not doing what my spouse thinks, if my spouse thinks negatively, and you can see this with um, Kirk and Kimberly in the illustration I read, Kirk can't stand it when Kimberly doesn't think about him the way she wants, the way he wants. And she can't stand it when he doesn't think about her the way they want. Because each of them, rather than seeing this as simply an opinion coming from somebody else, now sees it as a personal indictment. And once we see the other's, the other's position or the other's opinion as an indictment on us, we're driven to respond in one of several ways. Either we need to defend ourselves in order to get them to change their perspective, or we need to um, try to get the indictment dismissed, or we need to counter by filing another indictment. You know, it's kind of like, oh, okay, you think I'm a bad person? Well, let me point out all the ways that, you, that you're bad, that you don't measure up. And so, so now we're just kind of counter-filing, we're, we're kind of serving each other with these indictments that basically are telling each other all the worst things. Why? Why are we doing this? Are we doing this because we want to tear somebody down? No, we're doing this because we don't know how to, we don't know who we are and how to feel okay about who we are independent from what our spouse thinks. Um, my movements toward the other will not be for them from love. They'll be for me to get loved. Something I realized, this was a couple of years ago, I would call Peggy um, over the course of a day and I would ask Peggy, uh, I'd just check in with her. And when that would happen, I would... You know, I'd call her and I'd say, hey, honey, how you doing? And she made the mistake of thinking I was really inquiring about how she was doing. So she'd start telling me about how she was doing, about her day and about how she was having difficulty with producers or something like that. And about three minutes into the conversation, I, I started feeling annoyed. And the reason I was feeling annoyed was because she wasn't talking about the person I'd called her to talk about. I was really not asking her about how her day was. I was really asking her about how she has been thinking about me over the course of today. And so when she wasn't telling me about me and about how much she loved me and about how much she missed me and about how much she was looking forward to me coming home, see, my movements weren't really for her out of love. They were really for me out of my need to get loved. And so, and, and, and when we begin to notice this, <clears throat> you know, there are times in our relationship when um, there's, see, in our relationship, you all don't know Peggy, but Peggy is somebody who tends to be, um, um, she, she talks a lot. And I don't know how many of you we're here. I know most of you were here last time, but I was talking about maximizers and minimizers. Peggy really likes to talk and connect in the world. 
and I'm more of a minimizer. So it's not terribly uncommon for us to be, for me to be quiet, but it's terribly uncommon when she's quiet. And the only times that I have discovered that she's quiet is when she's troubled by something. Well, we were, several years ago, we were taking our girls to, um, dropping them off at a camp, and there was nothing but silence in the car, and I started getting a little anxious. And so I asked her um, how she was doing. Now, I really wasn't asking her how she was doing because I wanted to know about her. I was asking her how she was doing because I wanted to find out if I was in trouble or not. And so, you know, I didn't want to make it look too obvious. So I said, you know, how are you, how are you doing, honey? And she said, well, I'm, I'm doing okay. <clears throat> well, silence continued. And as it did, my anxiety level continued to get more and more intense. So finally, I said to her, honey, what's wrong? She said, nothing. So how come you're not talking? Because I really don't have anything to say. Well, that's not really like you. Well, I just don't have anything to say, Mark. Well, are you mad at me? No. Well, then how come you're not talking to me? Well, I just don't really have much to say. But you don't ever not have much to say. Would you stop bothering me? I thought you said you weren't mad at me. I wasn't. Now, notice all of that inquiry on my part really had very little to do with an interest in her. It was all about inquiring about my own sense of well-being. And so, consequently, my primary movements will not be toward them from love, but toward them for love. Um, I purposely made this talk uh, a two-week talk, and I noticed that my time is right at the time that Ron asked me to quit. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pick this up next week, and I'll tell you what I'm going to talk about. I'm going to finish our outline next week. And then next week, I'm going to talk about what does it mean and how do we, what do we do? Where do we go to find a sense of validation that enables us to enter into relationship uh, from fullness and for love rather than from emptiness uh, to get love? Because this will radically impact how we experience and express intimacy in marriage. So I'm leaving this um, talk today with a colon and a dot, dot, dot. And we'll just have to learn how to manage our anxiety over the course of the next week. Figuring out, you know, it's kind of like, okay, honey, I I don't really know where to go from here, but uh, we'll pick it up next week. And so let's try to minimize as much of the interaction as we have this week until we come back next week and figure out how to finish it up.